Welcome to another episode of Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder, where we are bringing science into focus. My name is Kai, I'm studying a PhD in physics, and today I'm joined by Catriona and Dom. So, how you guys are new to the show, why don't you tell us a little bit about us, Catriona? Hi, I'm Catriona, and I'm also a PhD student. I'm studying immunology, so I'm really interested in the immune system, how we're protecting ourselves against infection, and how it also can cause allergies. Um, so yeah, all that fun stuff. Very, very cool. What And what about you, Dom? Uh, my name's Dominic, and I am doing a graduate diploma in science zoology. I'm certainly not a PhD candidate, but uh, that'll do, I guess. Yeah, no, we're happy to have you on the show. Uh, I'm sure we're going to hear some cool stuff from you later. But first, we're going to get into some science news. And I'm going to start us off. We So some researchers have developed a new type of treatment for cancer. And what they do is they use iodine-infused nanoparticles and x-rays. Now, x-rays are pretty traditional used for treating cancers it's like radiation therapy where the high energy x-rays can damage the cancer cell or damage the dna in the cancer cell and this is enough to cause the cell to like kill itself so this this deliberately causing cells to die by damaging their dna is how we like can is one way of getting rid of cancers and because dna or sorry because cancer cells are rapidly um like multiplying this is actually particularly effective for getting rid of the cancer cells, damaging their DNA in this way. And the, the researchers in this study have actually developed an improvement on this technique. Now, ionize, um, X-rays are ionizing radiation, which means they cause electrons to be ripped off atoms. So these electrons is what actually causes the, the DNA to be damaged. So um, this, is, this is like the, the mechanism in, in how these therapies work. But the way that they've managed to improve it is using these iodine nanoparticles. And these particular particles are actually preferentially absorbed by the tumors. So you'll, if you give someone a drug containing these particles, they're, they're going to absorb into the tumors more than healthy cells. Hmm. And what these particles do is they make the x-rays more effective. And this is because if you tune the x-rays to just the right energy for these, these nanoparticles, they can eject electrons more effectively. So what this means is more electrons getting ejected means they're better at damaging the DNA and then they're going to be better at making those cancer cells like die off. And it's, it's also really good because it reduces the damage to healthy cells as well because the nanoparticles are mostly absorbed by the cancer cells. So this is going to be really useful in the future for improving the overall effectiveness of X-ray and radiation cancer treatments so, yeah, that's pretty cool. Love it. It's like biomed meets physics meets chemistry. <laughs> oh, it's it's really great. Um, Catriona, what what have you got for the news? Um, well, my, my bit of news is something that is becoming, I guess, increasingly relevant as the permafrost melts. Um, it's mm-hmm. that buried in glaciers and ice caps that, that have been frozen for thousands of years. There's this rich history of ancient ecosystems, which includes bacteria and viruses. 
Um, so researchers from Ohio State University were studying glacier ice in the Tibetan Plateau and as, as you do, they found viruses that were nearly 15,000 years old um, wow. and they are unlike any other viruses that we know about today. Um, so this is you know super cool for a number of reasons, but it means that we can now sort of study those viruses to better understand how viruses have evolved over you know, centuries and, and millennia. Um, so it's it's likely that they kind of reflect what the atmosphere was like back then, um, because essentially, you know, we, we have microbes in the air and because we have some airborne, airborne microbes, they um, they carried around on, on snowflakes or dust and then settle onto the surface of glaciers, yeah. which, you know, can freeze over. Mm. Yeah. So in the end, there were 33 unique viruses that they found in the ice and four had already been identified by the scientific community. So they're like yep. old news, <laughs> but <laughs> at least 28 of them are, are novel and have never been seen before. And we don't even know if they're found anywhere else on the planet. So, you know, that's, that's really, really cool. Um, Very cool. Yeah. I just want to emphasize though, that, that these viruses are harmless to us. Um, like <laughs> they're not they're not zombie viruses. Um, <laughs> they, Next clickbait article, right? Um, and is is that just because they're so old that they, they they don't know what a human cell looks like and they can't infect it? Um, well, actually, pe- people have tried. Like scientists have deliberately tried to revive like things like anthrax and and the the nineteen eighteen mm. flu and things from dead carcasses and things that have melted, but like. Scientists who have deliberately tried to do it haven't been able to make it viable, so it, it just right. doesn't really work. Um, but no, it's because these viruses are from they they infect bacteria that live okay. in frozen sort of cold environments, um, and and they're kind of buddies. Uh, so <laughs> the viruses help the bacteria to to source nutrients and things. Um, so that's really cool. It's like oh, these have coexisted or been buddies for like tens of thousands of years. So that's yeah. Wow. It's kind of our first window into the past, like looking back in time at ancient glaciers. And um, something that's really cool as well is that we can study these microbes at different levels in the ice cores to understand how the climate changed over those years um, and and what the environmental conditions were like. So maybe to uh, project trends for future (laughs) climate change. Yeah. yeah, and the techniques also could be used one day to look at microbes in you know, cold, dry environments like this, like Martian polar regions or, you know, any other icy planet in the solar system. Yeah. Elon Musk. <laughs> you listening, bro. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's my news. Dom, what story have you got for us? Okay, so mine's a little less science and maybe a little more economy or maybe a sort of joining of the two. Mine's about invasive species. Now, when I talk about invasive species, what do you guys think of? Let's keep it to Australia. Rabbits. Rabbits. <laughs> cane toads. Foxes. Yep. Rabbits, cane toads. Cool. Feral cats. So essentially, there's there's a new paper that's out, which is, I wouldn't say groundbreaking, but it's the first of its kind. It's It's tried to calculate the actual cost of invasive species. Now, this is going to be used as like a worldwide sort of template so it's pretty exciting stuff. They found that in the last 60 years, the cost of invasive species are $390 billion. Wow, that's hella wow. expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so it's enormous stuff. Um, and I think 
in a small segment, it probably wouldn't do it justice to sort of co- like talk about the issue and, and all the, the complicated things are part of it. But what do you think is the most invasive species in Australia? Like cost-wise, let's think about cost. We're talking about dollars here. Species, individual species. Well, I know rabbits are really like the, the biggest threat, but that's because they threaten vegetation. So I don't know how costly that is. Hmm. But my guess is probably like some weed or something mm. you don't even think about, but like kills all our crops or something. That's that's really expensive. <laughs> or like okay, a you're, bacteria. You're, bo- <laughs> you're both clearly educated people, so this is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, they're, they're right and slightly wrong answers. So the most okay. the most costly species is the cat, mm. the feral cat. Mm. So that's individual species dollar value, and that's that's primarily in. Uh, ACT and New South Wales. The second group or the largest group is invasive plants. So you're both kind of right. And that's at about $150 billion. And with the mammals being around the 40 billion mark. So it's kind of, it's one of those things that people let their cats out and it's really relatable and they might go to zoos and like Melbourne Zoo or Hillsville Sanctuary and those sorts of things. And they see lots of advertisements for like, keep your cats indoors and all this sort of stuff. And people kind of wonder, um, that's why, because it's an enormous cost in our economy. So that's that's one thing to consider. And, and another, another breakthrough thing with this study is 90% of all the costs are actually observed, which is, which is huge okay. if you think about it. So they're not extrapolated, they're not estimated, they're actual observed right. costs. So that's, in my mind, that's enormous. Like if you, if you start to think about that $390 billion Almost all of it's been observed and, and marked. So it's a substantial thing. We need to get on top of it. Um, so I thought it was a cool thing to mention. Also, lots of people think kangaroos are really invasive, but it's about 3% of that budget is uh, is for kangas. Wow. Mm. Even though they're like a native animal, they're still a pest in yeah, some cases. Yep. So the, a group of uh, native animals were included in that. So the koalas, kangaroos, uh, wombats, um, they're all considered pests in certain regions, which makes some people a little bit upset that fluffy little koalas can be considered a pest, but it's definitely true. But they're so vicious. Um, they are. If you hear them, their mating calls, damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's me, I reckon. Oh, nice. Well, that's a very topical news story for today's episode because we're going to be talking a little bit about conservation and... Uh, Before that, I'll just like to remind everyone that you can check us out on SoundCloud if you want to re-listen to our episodes or follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence. But now we've got a song. It is Conservation Conversation by Gruff Reese. Welcome back to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. And today we're talking about conservation. Catriona. Can you start us off? Thanks, Kaya. Well, all right. So we've heard of sniffer dogs and we've seen them in the airports, but have you ever seen them running around in the wild looking for wildlife? I can't say I have. (laughs) No. Yeah. So certainly haven't had any check my bags or anything. (laughs) Not when you're just like on a hike and it's like (laughs) sniffing your backpack. Um, Yeah, I thought I'd talk about, you know, like from from Border Collie bodyguards to to puppies on patrol, how we can use dogs to help protect some of our most threatened species. Um, And when you think about it, it makes sense. 
smelling is a dog's primary sense and, and dogs have mm. over 300 billion olfactory receptors in their nose in contrast to our measly 5 billion. <laughs> so their their sensitivity to smells is like up to 10,000 times greater than ours. Um, you know, I wouldn't be able to smell someone's drugs in their, in their luggage. Mm. <laughs> um, but also in addition, dogs can smell in stereo, meaning that they have the ability to smell through each nostril individually, whereas you might only really smell through one nostril if the other's blocked. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So because dogs have a superior sense of smell, um, we thought, okay, let, let's let's use them to help us locate and monitor threatened species that might be difficult for us humans to find just by using sight and hearing alone. Because um, yep. it tends to be less biased. And you can also cover a lot more ground faster because if you think of how fast dogs can run around the bush, mm. um, it's much faster than us trampling all over everything. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there can be lots of different dogs used um, for, for this, uh, like Jack Russells. Um, I've mentioned Border Collies and, and Golden Retrievers and Labradors. Um, and even in the US, there, were, there was a program that used a chihuahua so they got a chihuahua involved in searching for the oregon spotted frog but if, although it, it, it did have to be carried up the mountain in a backpack <laughs> that's my <laughs> um, kind of dog ridiculous yeah. but, but it made it there and and helped them spot the frogs um yeah so ultimately it's it's not the the breed but it's the relationship between the the dog the trainer and the handler that that has the greatest impact on the dog's detection abilities um, and mm. the dog lab at La Trobe University, which just sounds like a super fun place to work. <laughs> it does, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it, it trains local community volunteers and their dogs in, in conservation detecting. So oh, it, cool. it relies on that sort of strong bond between dogs and their owners. Um, so I thought I'd like talk about a couple of different um, programs. I guess it all kind of started in the U.S., um, where people in 1997 were like, okay, we've got dogs that we use in narcotics detection. <laughs> um, let's train them to locate scat. Um, so that's essentially poo yeah. or feces. <laughs> um, and so they trained the dogs to look for uh, grizzly bear and black bear scat uh, in Canada. Um, and the team collected the, the scat and, and from that poo, from the DNA in the poo, they could tell what species it was, what sex the bear was, um, the individual identities. Um, and also, like, really interestingly, by looking at the amount of cortisol in the poo and, like, the amount of progesterone metabolites, so looking at hormones as well, they could tell the level of um, physiological stress, the diet and, and the reproductive activity. <laughs> Wow. You can tell a lot from, from poo. Science. Um, <laughs> go science. Um, and go dogs. <laughs> um, yeah, they're like, they're happy to work all day and, and climb around. Dig around in poo. Yeah, dig around in poo, climb up mountains, climb over <laughs> rocks and, and fallen trees and um, even trek the snow. So um, for them, it's just a, a big game, which is, which is really cute. Yeah. Um, and I guess my interest in this all sort of stemmed from what Zoos Victoria is doing. They're, they're building a dog squad <laughs> um, to look for threatened species like the bauble frog and the plains wanderer bird. Um, and most dog detection has focused on mammals, but this is like the first time that um, we're, we're looking for amphibians. 
with dogs. Mm. So the tiny brown bauble frog, it buries like down to a meter in the mud. And typically when, when humans <laughs> go looking for, for this frog, they just listen out for the calls, but only the males and the male adults specifically call, which right. means that you miss all the females and you miss all the young that way. So they trained two brother border collies, Uda and Rubble, to sniff out like the skin <laughs> of the bauble frogs. So just by using skin swabs. Um, and then uh, even by day two of training, they could detect, you know, where the frogs were. And then they took them out into the field and found six bauble frogs. Um, wow. In, in just searching in a way that humans really can't. And, yeah, the dog squad's growing, so go zoos, Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And do, 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 these, do these guys have these puppy dogs? Do they have much impact? Because I know that there's some national parks don't let dogs in. Yeah. And the reason, a lot of the reasons behind that is they don't want the scats, so other animals smelling dog scats and then leaving young and things like that so what's the i don't know much of the i haven't read much research on it is what's the deal there with the impact yeah that's that's a really good question and it's a very important consideration that trainers have to take into account so um you know dogs usually like to bark and scratch and and you know mark their territory and all that but um you're absolutely right that's not great in the natural environment so um one thing that, that they're doing is teaching the dogs to use passive alert behavior. And so what that means is either they'll drop or they'll sit when they find the scat or, or signs of, of life um, rather than, you know, digging or, or barking or anything. Um, and they're also taught not to be distracted by other animals as part of the training. So they can't chase mm. any other wildlife or, or domestic animals or even pests. Um, and... It's also why most or, or all these um, programs are teaching the dogs to detect signs rather than the animals themselves. So looking for poo or looking for like traces of skin cells that have yeah, been shed okay. and things. Um, so so that, it, won't, it won't draw the dog to actually meet the individual. Yeah, yeah. Because um, that could be quite alarming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, disastrous. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so... Really, really cool programs. Um, and I guess the, the thing is, like, you know, detecting signs of life at all, like even these, like, scats and whatever, like, is really, really difficult for, for humans. Um, so in also close to home, like the Otways, um, it was a big home for the tiger quoll once upon a time. Um, but before 2012, there'd been no confirmed evidence of a tiger quoll in the Otways for like nearly a decade. So people were just like, oh, they're, they're probably gone, which is mm, yeah. a real shame. Yeah. Um, but then they brought in the Otways conservation dogs um, and they found scats of two different uh, tiger quolls in different areas. So that's really, really cool. And now they can, they're like, all right, the tiger quolls are here. Now we can sort of target our conservation efforts, um, such as fox control. Um, and things like that. Um, so yeah, the the dog sniffing detection is certainly quality. Nice. <laughs> she gets one in. She yes. gets one in. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're also like detecting new species now. So like potaroos as well. But that doesn't fit into my cold pun. <laughs> no, but just as cute. Yeah. Um. And I, I think it's it's a really nice 
thing that they're doing here. So I, I've spoken about the fact that, you know, we're, we're looking for a bond between uh, trainers and, and owners and, and dogs. Um, but some of the dogs that come into these programs are rescue dogs. So it's it's giving them a whole nother life. Um, so yeah. Maya was a dog in Queensland that was essentially saved from euthanasia and is now helping save koalas in in Queensland. So that's really, really lovely to sort of see these dogs have a purpose. Um, yeah. Yeah, the warm and tinglies. Yeah, and they're so yeah. cute. <laughs> yeah, they're so cute. Can you imagine just like your, your job is to train and play with dogs all day? Yeah. In the, in the name of conservation, dogs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always I'm always envious of those viticulture dogs and their owners, like the life that they would lead, mm. smelling grapevines and drinking wine. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, what what about those dogs that are just sniffing drugs or being trained <laughs> to sniff drugs? Yeah, if we use the same analogy for the for the owners, it'd be interesting. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. You've got to have like a really good rapport with your relationship with your dog, um, whose job it is to sniff out drugs. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So we've got dogs now that can sniff out drugs, that can sniff out like threatened species or rather like signs of life of threatened species, which is awesome. But um, I guess, Dom, you were saying at the start that you know, invasive species is a real problem as well. Um and so uh, the, the Australasian Conservation Dog Network is, is something that's recently been established. It's like a network of, of dog handlers, trainers, researchers and, and educators. Um, and they're looking at saving threatened species and, and training dogs to, to look out for threatened species like little penguins and um, the bauble frog and, and the bilby. Um, but also look look out for invasive species like um, foxes, mice, feral cats and things. So, you know, maybe if we train more dogs, we can bring that cost <laughs> that you mentioned down. Mm, yeah. I mean, this this sounds, it's super interesting. I've, I've heard of similar stuff, but I mean, there's lots of eDNA, the environmental DNA mm. stuff. This is, this is kind of like a really specific version of an eDNA um, survey. Yeah, I guess it's it's a way to detect eDNA to to mm. you know use these dogs to go out and hunt for it rather than us having to do it. Yeah, you're skipping a whole bunch of lab tests and you kind of just going straight to the source. It's cool. Hmm. Yeah. So detection dogs, dog squads, love it. <laughs> I've, got so, I've got so many cute images in my head of like these. <laughs> row of dogs with matching uniforms and stuff, but yeah, cute what little is... vests. <laughs> yeah, They're protecting cute little animals like quolls and stuff. Yeah, yeah. No. Catriona, oh. you, you you're a immunology. Yes. Yep. Why? Uh, how are you not zoology ecology? <laughs> Your passion. There's there's passion there. I can <laughs> I can hear it. I do love dogs. <laughs> um, look, if I had another life, maybe I would have gone into into this training dogs to like look out for species so fun <laughs> it is so fun and conservation is so fun and that's what we're talking about on today's episode of radio silence but now we're going to take it to a song and this really needs no introduction but here's one anyway it's who let the dogs out by baja men
What a throwback. That was Who Let the Dogs Out, a song that probably needs no introduction. You are listening to Radio Silence and we are talking all about conservation. So over to Dom, who has a story about conservation. Thanks, Katriana. So I'm going to talk about a little guy in the ocean that I care about. I've spent a lot of time with in my professional and and personal life. It's the weedy sea dragon. Do either of you know what the weedy sea dragon is slash looks like? I'm just thinking of like in the lake of Harry Potter and the the, the Goblet of Fire. Like, <laughs> I, w- I was hoping for like a never ending story kind of uh, analogy, yeah. being like <laughs> something like that. So you guys aren't familiar. I, I think I can give a little like description a, or something if you it's like. It's like a little little seahorsey type thing. Be pretty well bang on. Um, pretty much. Yeah. So yeah. it's a it's a cousin of the seahorse, uh, pot belly or or big belly seahorse, um, but it doesn't have a pouch. Now we all know that seahorses are unique in their reproductive cycle because the dudes look after the little ones. Um, it's yep. virtually the only exception. There might be a couple in the animal kingdom, um, so they're pretty special. So we have a species in Australia called the weedy sea dragon, and I'm going to butcher its Latin name, but here we go. <laughs> The Philoteryx tainilatus. I think that's roughly right. Now, this little guy, it can get up to about 18 inches long, so it's about 45 centimetres. That's a really big guy, probably more up in New South Wales. Um, They're really colourful, and they're not like their cousin, the seahorse, with the curly tail that wraps onto things. It's like a long, elongated with a straight tail and a really long, straight sort of snout. Right. I don't know if I'm painting a picture here. It's decorated. It's got beautiful colors. It's got little white dots and yellow backgrounds and the eggs when the female and the male mate and they the female passes the eggs to the male are beautiful and pink. So they're bright pink and they're on the outside of the male's tail. So you can dive with them. I've actually got a photo somewhere online of me with a, with a pregnant male. So these guys are really beautiful. So they're a very popular species for the divers and tourists. Pre-COVID, we had lots of uh, international divers looking for these little guys. Um, But there's some controversy at the moment. Well, I'm going to be careful with some of my words here. There's an issue going on at the moment down the peninsula where there is Flinders Pier. Do you guys know Flinders down the Mornington Peninsula or on the Western Port Bay? Yep. It's an old pier um, that was built a long time ago, 1860, I think, like... And then it was replaced, um, pretty much the whole thing, but still with timber. And then there was a concrete pier chucked in beside it to go half its length, um, just for longevity, those sorts of things. Now, Parks mm-hmm. Victoria is recently proposing to demolish 180 metres from the shore to the first landing. Now, if you don't know the pier, then that's not going to make much sense, but that's okay. 180 metres is a, is a decent chunk. Mm. Now... As far as I can see in my research of the weedy sea dragon, um, they're not endangered. So the IUCN, um, which is like an internationally recognized sort of biologist, ecologist um, database of where species are and their population data and things like that. They say they're not endangered. Okay, right. so they're called, they're least concerned with a arrow moving towards near threatened. So they think that the population dynamics are moving towards a threatened thing, but it's not, it's unknown. Yeah. Now, but you care a, about them. I care, I care <laughs> about them, but this is, there's an interesting twist. 
I, I love these little dudes, um, and they're found from New South Wales all the way over to Perth, and they're around Tassie. Now, a lot of local divers and local conservation groups kind of think that Flinders Pier, Portsea Pier are the only two places in the world that these little guys exist. Um, without getting too... It's com- not true. It's not true. No, <laughs> it's not true. However, recent studies have suggested, like genomic testing um, suggests that the Victorian ones are a sub, almost like a subspecies, so they're oh, unique cool. in a sense. Um, so they're not endangered, but this community group down the peninsula is really kicking up a stink about the pier being demolished. Now, we haven't got any impact reports back from Parks Victoria yet. It's ongoing, it's going to come back, and then we can all look at it and those sorts of things. And I'm curious to see how you guys feel, because as someone who's loved the environment, um, it's been important to me all my life, and now that I'm studying science... I'm looking at things through a different lens, a side lens. <laughs> what, what a link, what a segue. Um, and it's got me thinking about conservation efforts and the basis behind a lot of them. So I understand that people get upset when something cute and something they love, there's a threat or a perceived threat, which is this pier being taken down, 180 metres of pier. But this is from the shore 180 metres in, where there's no seagrass, there's not much productivity underneath the pier, and the dragons don't live there. The dragons live almost exactly from the 180 metre mark (laughs) to the end of the pier, which is another 100 and something metres down. Right. Right. And And it's fascinated me that this has kicked off to such a great extent. And guess who has got involved? Think of the biggest conservation giant... You can and give it to me. Have a crack. Greenpeace? I don't know. <laughs> individual. Think of an individual. Fam- very famous individual. Oh, I'm thinking <laughs> like Steve Irwin, but he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> my, he's my, back. <laughs> my thought was WWF, but um, like the World Wildlife um, Fund. But... Uh, yeah, this person's got a lot to do with them. So I'll, I'll cut it short. The man, Sir David Attenborough has gotten involved and written a personal letter to the head of a community group. Um, Now, I'm not going to try and politicise it. I've recently written an article about this, and if you want to read it, you can go on uh, Scientific Scribbles on the Unimail page and find that blog post, which goes into a little bit more. But I'm fascinated to think or to find what you guys think about conservation issues and if there's anything that you're really passionate about. Like, is there anything in your area or... Could be save the whales, those sorts of things. Like anything pop up? For me, it's like the the little um, marsupials around. So like the eastern barred bandicoot, and like particularly all those those little mammals that we've got, or like little tiny populations that are down to you know, twenty. Um, a lot of them being in the mm. alpine regions and things. Um, so I guess they're what i'm interested in i think you like perfectly nailed that so you said they're down to about 20 yeah so the main difference i think with a lot of terrestrial conservation efforts is we're getting really good at figuring out what's going on i know ecology is a hugely complex science and i'm such a noob but it's we're getting there we're starting to understand things but with this species or with a lot of marine species we've got no idea and and public Mm. perception is kind of a little bit off like i think a lot of people think uh, australian fisheries are really unsustainable Mm. that's 
that's not true. Australia's fisheries are quite sustainable and probably some of the best managed in the world. Whereas the global the global trend is bad. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we're we're picking up sort of. So yeah, that that fit, that fascinated me. Like I love these little guys, and then all of a sudden there was this explosion of we're going to lose the weedy sea dragon at Flinders Pier, and I started thinking about it and. I was like, hang on, 180 meters, there's nothing there. <laughs> I'm like... I, I have a question about... Yeah, shoot. How... Because I, I've recently, like, heard from a coastal um, geologist and who, who was talking about the fact that, that beaches sort of change over time, like you've got the sand moving in and out, and so the sand isn't really lost ever, but it, it does change the, the shape of the beach and things. So how would removing the pier or part of the pier impact i guess the entire um shape of the beach and then would that potentially like so not the fact that you're impacting directly the area where where the city weedy sea dragons are but but rather the entire area is that going to impact them 100 percent. it's it's a great question and i'm totally on board on board and behind that but we we don't know the answer and i think waiting for the impact report is kind of like the the thing in my head like i like seeing both sides of what's going on and i was just so interested by people jumping on something that was maybe a little bit premature you're right though i mean changing a structure that large could definitely have an impact and some species will be displaced mm. there's there's no doubt about it i'm i'm not saying it's going to have no effect um but i mean the the uproar and you know this is going to damage them it's going to remove them from this area i don't know there's something about it that you kind of feel like you need to inform people just like basic yeah. things like the weedy so, sea so dragon is it lives in seagrass what you're saying is like as scientists we should wait until people have actually done the, the proper research and, and followed the scientific method and come up with this report that actually says well are they going to be impacted or not and and we can't really just jump on the, the bandwagon because it's it's a popular issue yeah so that's right I, what you're saying let the yeah, scientists do the science <laughs> i guess yeah. so which which i mean in in sci in psycom like that sort of world there's the encouragement of scientists to have an opinion and to provocate and those sorts of things which i think is also good which is why i want to talk about it um but I think it's just nice to discuss that sort of thing. And people often think because you're an ecologist or whatever, that you're going to be like totally anti what's happening. And I think it's good to put that out there and sort of see what people think. And because I'm not even formed on my opinion, mm. but I think it's really important to discuss. And I wanted to bring it up with you guys being big brains <laughs> and, and see what you thought, because they're, they're good questions as well. Mm, that's science right like you're constantly changing knowledge and as mm, long as you acknowledge yeah. that you know yeah that's good. the thing you, if something new comes along you got to be willing to update your belief system mm. which is which is cool but uh yeah i was just fascinated it's kind of like a mix between conservation science biology like social science those sorts of things and yeah um yeah it's just something to to look out for Mm, yeah, thanks so much for that story, Dom. Um, so this is this is my song, Cat. Um, we, we've got a song, Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin. That was an oldie but a goldie. That was Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin. 
Now we're here on Radio Silence talking about conservation, and I'm going to throw it over to Kai. Well, thanks, Dom. So we've been talking about conservation today, and in, in both your segments, Dom and Catriona, we, we saw that it's it's really important part of conservation efforts to actually know what's going on in the ecosystem. Like, we need to know how many weedy sea dragons are there, like... We need to know how many quolls there are. You get, get your you know, sniffer dogs out there to, <laughs> to find quolls. So it's really important to know what's going on if we, if we want to be able to make a difference and make sure that we can conserve the environment. And, yeah, so there are traditional methods for doing this, and it's like the field surveys. So maybe maybe things like going out and counting, like, poo. Like, that's one way of keeping tabs on the ecosystem. Or if, if Dom's going diving and, and looking at sea dragons. Like, this is, this is all ways that we can actually do this. Though sometimes these sorts of methods can be a little bit difficult to study, like, the ecosystem as a whole. Like, it's harder to get the full picture if you're only in any given place at a time. So we, we want to look at ways of making this easier. And... As with a lot of things in life, technology can make things a little bit easier and, and more wide-reaching. So some of this, there's, some, there's a couple of different ways of how technology impacts or can be used in these sort of surveys. Have you guys got any, any ideas? Well, Deer I, in the headlights. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, sequencing technology is, is, you know, one thing, I guess. Like, I don't know. Yeah, like, you, you've still got to, like, get the... the the data in the first place, or you've got to get the, the samples, mm. but, but ways of, of monitoring, of monitoring ecosystems as a whole. And I think one of the sort of simplest ones that came to my mind before I researched this was like just a motion activated camera. So it's something you can leave out in the ecosystem and, you know, it'll pick up maybe animal behavior when it, it detects motion. Mm. But as, as technology is developing, there's some even more advanced methods of, of monitoring ecosystems as a whole and one of them that's become really useful over the past probably decades or so is satellite imaging and and we know we can we can learn a lot about the planet earth from looking at it from satellites and there's some really cool technology that i think is fitted to these sorts of earth like earth facing satellites that one of them is it's it's called a hyperspectral camera now, most cameras can see three colors. So the red, green, and blue that sort of our eyes see. And that makes sense. If you want to take a digital photo of something, you want it to look pretty similar to what we would see it as. Mm. But the, the three colors, red, green, and blue, aren't super useful for getting scientific data. So that's where hyperspectral cameras come in. And they can detect more different wavelengths of light. And some of these might also be in the visible spectrum and having having more than just red green and blue can give you more details but also they can detect light from outside the visible spectrum so things like infrared or ultraviolet light and being able to detect or image things using these like different wavelengths of light is really useful for getting information about what's going on on earth and one of the most like common uses of infrared imaging is for weather and climate studies. So a lot of the data that's used to make weather predictions is actually infrared data and it can like measure temperatures or it can get an idea of what's going on in the atmosphere. So that's, that's really cool. 
But there's some even like more out there things that you can do with infrared data. One of them is measuring transpiration. Now, transpiration is the fancy word for when vegetation loses moisture to the atmosphere. Hmm. And by measuring what's going on on the earth using satellites, you can actually get an idea of how much moisture plants are losing. And this can tell you things about what's going on in the environment, how healthy the plants are, what the water resources are around. And, and it's, it's really useful. Other things as well, like um, that you can do with infrared cameras is you can look at the temperature of a soil and you can get an idea of, you know, is that soil healthy? Is it, it what sort of um, moisture content does it have? And these are all really important things that it's all good data for making decisions about monitoring and conserving ecosystems. Yeah. Like, do we have this, I, I'm guessing that we'd be able to backdate as well, right? Like we'd have all this data from satellites like for decades, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Though there are like constantly more and more efforts to like improve the technology on the satellites, like get better resolution and get more like more wavelengths that you can detect because most of the satellites currently are designed for weather, but that's, you know, maybe slightly different uh, imaging techniques could be useful for looking at things like plants. But this has become really like, like the sort of driving force behind this sort of thing so far has been agriculture because, you know, we were speaking before in the news segment that like agriculture is really important part of the economy and like, pests can can impact that and cost cost the economy like billions of dollars so people really want to make sure their crops are doing fine and using satellites to do that is really useful for them though it it turns out that these satellites aren't actually very effective or as effective as we would like them to be for measuring things like biodiversity so the kind of the reason why this is is when you want to look at like a paddock full of crops you you can measure the whole paddock as a whole and you assume there's one type of plant in there and you can make assumptions and that's that's useful for looking at your crops, but it's not so good at looking at like what else is going on in the ecosystem because biodiversity is on a smaller scale and, and the imaging resolution isn't, isn't high enough. And one of the issues here is that this is particularly with freely available satellite data. So some nice people have decided they've put a satellite up and they're going to make all the images freely available for anyone who wants them, which is great for like community groups that want data on, on their environments or things like that. But it's not so good if you have to pay lots of money to get good data. Mm. So one way that technology is enabling conservation efforts to be made more effective is to use drones. Now... I think drones are pretty cool. Yeah, go drones. <laughs> I got one right behind me. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, so the, the cool thing about drones is that they can get much closer to the ground than satellites, obviously, and therefore can take much higher resolution images. And this allows them to do some really cool things like actually detect and identify individual species in an environment. So there was, there was a study I was, I was reading where... They flew a drone over an area of like bushland and the resolution was high enough that they could detect like each individual plant that was on the ground and it had resolution, I think it was down to like eight millimeters oh, on the ground. So that was Damn. really, really fine. 
And yeah, they could go, oh, that's that particular type of, of grass. That's that particular shrub. That's that weed. And they could get a really good idea of what was going on in this ecosystem. And that was all great data for informing their land management strategy that, that they could then go on and implement. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. And I, I think drones are really cool. Yeah, so and you could, you could get a whole bunch of citizen <laughs> scientists involved as well. Um, yeah. I, I know of studies that have been using like footage of just you know anyone you you, you spoke about like you know there's good Samaritans who have satellites out there and are giving data away yeah. for free but um, like also drone footage like there are people who are looking over the Great Ocean Road and looking at the shapes of the coast and things and how it's changed just based on you know because a lot of people have drones down there or they take the drones down there yeah. Um, yeah so imagine like how many people have all this footage that we could use yeah, and it was so good for people to like be able to contribute to science and conservation by making this footage available mm. to people who are looking for it. Everyone so you, can be you're a so much, scientist. You're so much of a nicer person. My, my immediately thought, like my immediate thoughts with that was, hmm, you can make money from flying a, <laughs> flying a drone for scientists. And you're like, oh, the citizen science can, you know, give free stuff. Whereas you're just like, my- I have plugged the fact that I have a drone. Contact yeah. me, call me. For- <laughs> Hit me up. <laughs> Sorry, Kai. <laughs> no, that's that's all good. Like, I'll let you know if I need drone. Yeah, thanks, man. Like, um, yeah, but so the technologies we've talked about so far, are all based on traditional imaging techniques. Like we're just taking photos. Maybe they're hyperspectral, so you've got like infrared photos and stuff, but it's it's still basically just a two-dimensional image. But there is a technique that's becoming more and more popular called LIDAR. And mm. this is an acronym that stands for like laser direction and ranging. And it's basically the same as radar, but it uses light. And, and the way this works is it scans like a laser really rapidly over a surface and measures the light that's reflected back. And then what it does is it can build up a 3D map of that surface. So I don't know if you guys have ever seen one of those documentaries where they go to like an archaeological site like the pyramids or something and they do like a scan and they you know build up this 3D model of what's going on inside the pyramids and like all the different tunnels and stuff. No, you haven't yeah. seen them. You just, yeah. <laughs> I think I've seen. Um, I think I've seen those things in like real estate. This is so lame, but like, oh, yeah, 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 they, yeah, they put them in real estate and then it builds like a model of the the home so they can put it on the website. Particularly important now <laughs> so, when you can't actually visit a home. Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry, it's a crap example, but you know, you know where I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. So like, that's is a pretty boring example, but like, <laughs> it's definitely useful in in more cool applications like conservation and. What people have been doing and is using, or one example that I found was using LIDAR to actually map out a forest. And they were they set up the lasers in all different spots in the forest and were scanning it around. And they could measure like the canopy, forest canopy cover and get an idea of like how much vegetation was there. And they could track changes over time in the forest canopy. And this was really good for identifying areas where, you know, the forest was changing and maybe conservation efforts needed to be focused in these areas to make sure that you know it wasn't having human impacts wasn't what was causing these changes and and yeah i just think it's really cool that we can do all these things and actually use technology to to help conservation efforts 
though I'm sure it's it's always good to get out in the field yourself sometimes and and have a look for yourselves. Like that's also also pretty nice. Get out of the, the office. <laughs> get out of the office. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, for all the non-lockdown people listening out there. <laughs> <laughs> we're all we're all speaking from lockdown right now so we're dreaming of those field surveys dreaming of going out in the field yeah wouldn't that be nice yeah so that i think that's all the time we've got for today uh it's been a great episode talking about conservation here on radio silence let's throw it to one last song this is wildfire by darcy spiller <laughs>